just when you thought there was no hope for baby boomers. It's the Rational Boomer Podcast. Logic, common sense, compassion. Yeah, who knew? Now, here's Mike. We are back on the Rational Boomer Podcast. Hope your day is going well. Now, if you listened to the previous podcast, you know that I'm doing these podcasts, these two podcasts, in advance. Normally, I do the podcast on the day of. But I can't do that in this situation because I'm in Phoenix, Arizona with some friends. And no doubt, I'm partying like it's fucking 1999. No, we're probably sitting by the pool, getting worn out, sunburnt, and going to bed early. But that's neither here nor there. The point of this is, is I had to record these two podcasts early. I'm recording this podcast like I reported, recorded the previous podcast on Wednesday. So I can't really go into the news of the day because I'm two or three days behind and it's just going to sound stupid. So in the previous podcast, I told you a story about my days in the music business, only because I've had a lot of people ask me about it. I've done some TikToks about a couple of stories. I even mentioned it in the podcast early on, and people have been asking me to talk about it. And since I had to record something in advance, I knew all those stories. I thought, well, I'll do a podcast like that. Now, people are going to get something they don't expect, but it's better than not putting anything out there at all. So I'm interested to hear what you thought about that particular podcast. You can feel confident that when I get back from Phoenix, the next podcast after this one, it'll be normal again. We'll be talking about the same shit. So I told the story about my personal experience in the previous podcast. And the question is, what do I do on this podcast? Do I tell another personal story? I got a million of them. There's a lot of things to talk about. But I thought, no, that's going to get fucking boring. Well, I may not have a choice. So I made the choice in doing this podcast as just a stream of consciousness. (laughs) It means I'm going to open my mouth and whatever fucking comes out, comes out. Because we can talk about a lot of stuff. And you know, in my career in radio, I was known for one thing. I was known for talking. Not so much quality, but I got quantity by the ass. When I was uh, a traffic reporter, um, I worked in the Department of Transportation office, and they had all the cameras of all the places on the freeway system. There was like 600 of them. My job was to sit down, look at these cameras, and then do play-by-play of traffic. Now, the reason the Department of Transportation wanted to do this and paid the radio station to do this is because they felt like traffic in the city wasn't really all that effective. And it's not. It's just a throwaway item on most radio stations to run another fucking commercial. They didn't really care about managing traffic. Well, the Department of Transportation did, and they figured if they got a traffic announcer and a traffic report on a radio station that they could control, then... It would be more effective. I mean, the bottom line is if you're on the roadways and you hear there's a fucking crash five miles ahead of you, you're going to avoid it. And hopefully that'll reduce the backup. So it was a good premise. And it was a premise that worked for a long, long time. So anyway, I'm I'm, I'm doing this job. And 
The thing about these traffic reports that are different than other traffic reports you hear throughout the country are that they're every 10 minutes during the peak periods, morning rush hour, afternoon rush hour, and I'm doing all of them. I'm working a split shift. And these reports can go as long as necessary. Whatever's going on, if I have to go 30 seconds, a minute, two minutes, three minutes, that's what I do. I just tell everything that's going on in the system. And this worked pretty well. I got some accolades about it from local and even some national media about it. It was cool. The people in the town that listened to it, and I'll tell you right up front, the station I was on was not hugely listened to, but the people that did listen were incredibly loyal. I mean, they were with me every day, every 10 minutes for fucking 27 years. That that says a lot. But there was this one strategy that the Department of Transportation came up with that I didn't think was a good idea. I fucking hated doing it. But... Uh, it made sense to them, and they were making the payments to the radio station, who in turn were making the payments to me, so we just fucking did it. And it was called Continuous Coverage. Oh, I fucking get the shivers when I think about it. <laughs> but anyway, what Continuous Coverage was, if there was a major crash where a major artery was shut down, we would go into Continuous Coverage. We would stop all regular programming. The mic would go on in front of me, and I'd just fucking talk as long as it takes. And that is some boring shit. <laughs> I mean, I'll be honest with you. I'm doing the report, and I'm going on and on and on and on. I was fucking getting bored. I was almost putting myself in a fucking trance. But the point of it was they had a bunch of... Sorry, I bumped the mic there. They had a bunch of... Uh, um, signs all over that lit up and when we were doing reports the signs would light up and people would know to turn to the radio station to find out but when we had a major accident maybe a death was involved these fucking things could go on for three hours literally three hours and that meant i got to talk for three fucking hours about the same shit over and over again I'd have to talk about, because you don't know when somebody's going to join the radio station and hear what's going on, and you got to give them the information. So I'd talk about the crash, then I'd go around the whole system, talk about everything else that's going on, so those people weren't neglected. But then I'd go back to the accident. I'd go like this for an hour, two hours, three hours, and it was just fucked up. Until I talked them out of doing it. And the reason I talked them out of it and I was able to con con convince them that this wasn't a good idea was just common sense. And the common sense is that uh, um, if I'm doing continuous coverage, that's all they're hearing is the traffic report. Now, people want to hear traffic reports in short bits because they need the information, but they want their regular programming. And this station had regular programming. It played jazz of all things. So the jazz fans would be listening to the jazz station, hear the jazz, hear my traffic report. All was cool. But the moment the jazz stopped and I was just doing traffic continuously, you have to presume the jazz fans were going to fucking leave, especially if this particular situation didn't impact them. So I explained to them this. What's your goal here? To get enough information out to the most people possible, right? They said, yeah. I said, well, you're failing here. 
because as much as it sounds good that we are are are, are um, on continuously and anybody can get it at any particular time, we have now a smaller audience than we did when we were just doing the reports. So we're not really getting done what you want to get done. We're not helping to manage traffic by getting more information to more people. And they're all engineers and shit. And it took a couple minutes. And they go, you know, you're fucking right about that. So what I propose to them is to do um, <clears throat> four-minute reports every 10 minutes. So we could get some jazz and some news. And I didn't have to fucking talk forever. I got to tell you, I lost my voice talking straight for three hours. And now at my age, when I do these podcasts for, um, for what, 50 minutes, maybe an hour, I'm pretty well spent. So you have to bear with me here. This is the second podcast I've done today, and I'm going to do one tonight for Thursday. So my voice may take a hit on this situation. But while we're on the subject of doing doing the traffic reports, and I don't want to spend a lot of time on it because, frankly, it's fucking boring. Part of my job with the Department of Transportation and the radio station was helping to promote some safety issues. And in this town, we have snow plows. And if you've ever seen a snow plow, they are some big motherfuckers. And if you get hit by a snow plow or hit a snow plow, you're just fucking dead. I mean, it's crazy. But still, we know people on the roadways, they'll get behind a snow plow. It'll be snowing, it'll be slippery, and those dumb motherfuckers will want to pass it every goddamn time. And we get people dying on the roads because they're making dumb choices and they're running into snow plows or getting hit by snow plows. So it was my job to create PSAs that, uh, um, that talked about safety and trying to get people to be safer around these, uh, these uh, snow plows. Now, normally, when somebody like the Department of Transportation or even a radio station does something like that, they'll do a PSA like, well, the snow plows are out there and they are dangerous, so stay the fuck away from them. And I always thought that was ridiculous. Nobody listened to those PSAs. They were just waiting for what was coming next. They weren't hitting home with those PSAs. So I thought I'd do it differently. And I had two kids. I had one kid that was probably about seven and one kid that was probably about, no, he was probably eight or nine, and the other kid was like three or four, okay? And I wanted to incorporate them in the PSAs because you get a kid's voice in a PSA, and that'll tug at the heartstrings if you do that. I thought that made some sense. <laughs> so I did these podcast, or these uh, PSAs, and I had my older son, who was a, they're both very bright kids, but the other one was pretty young. So I knew I only could use him for a couple of lines in this PSA. And I did this PSA, and uh, it started out with my son. I wasn't in the PSA until the tag at the end. And it started out with my older son, and he says, my, my dad was driving down the roadway recently with the snowstorm and all the stuff, and he came up on a a snow plow, and he got in an accident with a snow plow. And then my little guy comes in and he says, uh, he got dead. And then my older one says, it's okay, buddy. We'll be okay. And then I come in and I say, you got to be safe around those snow plows. You've got friends, you got families, you have a life. Don't risk it with a snow plow. And that was the PSA. 
<laughs> I thought it was pretty effective. And in fact, it was very effective because people heard this and they reacted immediately. And that's the thing you want to do when you're doing a PSA, a commercial or whatever, is touch people's hearts. Give them an emotion because then that stays with them. <laughs> well, my little guy was really excited by the fact that he was he was um, on the radio. And they could hear it on the fucking radio. <laughs> so he brings a tape recorder and the tape with him of that PSA. He wants everybody to hear what he did on this radio PSA and how he's on the radio now. So the teacher sets it up and they're all sitting around and <laughs> they play the PSA. And at the end of the PSA, all the kids are crying. They're upset. They're mad. They don't know what to think because <laughs> they think my little guy's dad really fucking died. <laughs> and so my little guy's going around. No, no, he didn't die. It's just a. It's just a. <laughs> he was never allowed to bring PSAs that he was involved in later. <laughs> and then I, I get a call from the DOT, and they say, Mike, we got to pull that spot off. I go, why? He says, people are very upset about it. People are, are uh, they don't feel good. It makes them feel uncomfortable. It's really touching. It's really sad. I said, and you want to take it off? I said, what was the point of doing the PSA? Well, it was to keep people safer and aware of uh, snowplows. I said, fucking exactly. It's working. It's making them uncomfortable. Well, fucking good. We need to make them uncomfortable. We need to make them understand the danger of it. And that's what that PSA did. And so they were very confused. They were getting a lot of heat because it's too sad. But I said, I'm doing exactly what you want me to fucking do. So I don't know. I don't know. Now, you're, you have to understand, this is after I'd come out of the era where I was writing and producing and, and doing commercials in my studio. I was no longer in my studio. I was in my job doing these traffic reports, which I didn't want to fucking do because it's boring. <laughs> I tend to think of myself as a creative guy, and doing these traffic reports doesn't afford a lot of creativity. So I got involved in some other things outside the job to try to keep my creativity flowing. Now, while we're on the topic of PSAs, I'll tell you another story. I had this client back when I had my studio, very wealthy guy. He was a money manager. He had hedge funds and all this stuff. And he was a, he was an unusual guy. He and I got to be very good friends, even though he was very wealthy and I was pretty much fucking broke. But I was doing the job for him, and I was doing it in such a way that he liked it, so we got to be buddies. Now, you have to understand, this guy's worth probably $100 million. I'd go to his door. He'd be dressed in cut-off jeans, a tore T-shirt, <laughs> and a fucked-up hat from the radio station I used to uh, the, 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 that I was working for because he was a fan of the radio station as well. He liked jazz. So one day, every year, he decides to do a PSA campaign against the lottery and pull tabs and all that stuff. He believes, because he was a liberal guy, even though he was rich, he believes that uh, pull tabs and, and the lottery and that is just a tax against poor people. And I guess he's right about that. It is a tax against poor people. So he's telling me how he's going to do this PSA campaign and see if I can get it on my radio station. I said, sure, we can get it on the radio station. And he plays it for me. I go, geez, man, that's fucking boring. 
That's just a generic thing that nobody's going to listen to. I said, look, man, let me do it for you. You don't have to pay me. Just let me do it for you. (laughs) And he looks at me and goes, no, I pay these guys a lot of money to do it. I said, look, man, I can do it better than that, and I'll do it for free. What the fuck do you want? He says, all right, go ahead and do it. So I'm applying the same mental attitude (laughs) about these PSAs as I did with the snowplows. So I thought, we've got to touch somebody's heartstrings. We've got to get their attention. (laughs) So once again, (laughs) I pull in my kids to do the PSA. (laughs) And I pull in my older son, not my younger son this time. I pull in my older son, and I have him do this PSA. And the PSA basically goes, he's talking to his mom. I got a friend of mine who's a woman voice talent, and it was mom and son. And my son starts it off by saying, oh, mom, can I get those really cool tennis shoes? Everybody's got those tennis shoes. Can I get those fucking tennis shoes? He didn't say fucking, but you know. (coughs) Excuse me. But anyway, so she says, "Ah, you know, Jimmy, I can't. His name's not Jimmy. It's just for the PSA. He says, Jimmy, I can't. I don't have the money. I can't afford those kinds of tennis shoes. I'm sorry. We We just don't have the money. She says, but, you know, I got some of these, some of these scratch-offs, and I could win big money on these fucking scratch-offs. So if we win, I'll buy you those tennis shoes. So you hear her scratching it off in the PSA. The kid's getting kind of anxious, and she scratches it off. And the kid goes, did you win? Did you win? <laughs> and she said, Jimmy, no, I'm sorry. We didn't win. I can't get you those tennis shoes. He says, yeah, and you spend so much money on the scratch-offs, I can't even get the bad tennis shoes I need. And that was it, and I did a tag, say, don't use the lottery, don't do scratch-offs, all that shit, and we put it out. Now, the guy heard it, and he kind of liked it. He thought it was different than what he expected, but he liked it. So it went out there. (laughs) It was on one radio station the first day. The lottery heard it or heard about it. And they were fucking furious. They didn't like the idea that I was making it out to be some poor mom not being able to get her tennis shoes because they were buying scratch-offs. Oh, they were fucking furious. And so what had happened is it had ended up on the news. The, 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 the news channels were coming out, and they were saying, oh, the lottery's very mad. They're talking about suing. They're doing all this other shit, and they're mad. And they would do the story on the news, and they would play the PSA. And then all the morning shows, <laughs> all the big-time radio morning shows in town were playing it and said, oh, this guy's in trouble. They're mad about this. This is owned <laughs> the lottery so all the all the uh, um morning shows the ones with the big ratings were playing this thing there was a big hubbub about this my god calls me up and he goes what the fuck did you do i go what do you mean what did i do he says a lot of people are mad about this i said okay he said it's all over the fucking place and and, and people are mad what are we gonna do <laughs> <laughs> and I said, dude, we're not going to do jack shit. 
I don't know why you're angry with me. He said, what do you mean? It's causing all kinds of hubbub. I said, fucking exactly. What you're trying to get is intention. You were buying little spots here and there all over the radio stations hoping you'd do some good. Now it's on every fucking news channel, every morning show, every radio station, and they're playing the goddamn PSA. We're having some impact. That's the difference between putting out some generic shit that nobody listens to and put something out that hits people where it hurts in their heart. And then he settled down and he goes, well, that's pretty fucking smart. I I don't know if it was smart, but it worked. So why are we bitching about it? And he says, yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. (laughs) And he went with it. And we got a lot of exposure and a lot of people upset. And that's exactly what we were trying to accomplish. We were trying to make a point. And that's exactly what we did is we fucking made a point. Now, after that, I still work with the guy. (laughs) And uh, we talked about those PSAs the next year and the next year. And he kind of wanted me to do it, but he was a little afraid because he didn't like the backlash he got from it, even though it was effective. So I never did another one for him again, and I got busy with other stuff, so I couldn't really do it. But the point of it is, is when I did the snowplow PSAs and I did the lottery PSAs, I was doing exactly what Fox News, OAN, Newsmax is doing. Except I was doing it with some credibility and some legitimacy. They do it by telling lies and bullshit. But they're affecting people's fears. What makes them happy? What makes them sad? What makes them scared? And they have no integrity, so they don't care what they say. They will say lies to bring up that emotional reaction. And so they are doing the same things that I did with those PSAs. And, but they're selling something that isn't true. And you get a lot of people out there that aren't the smartest motherfuckers in the world, and they buy into it only because it goes along with their agenda. Oh, yeah, I don't like black people, so they're right about that. I like strong leaders, so Donald Trump is my guy, even though Donald Trump isn't strong at all. He's just got a big fucking mouth. He's like the guy in the bar that yaps and yaps and yaps, but when somebody stands up to him, The fucker runs. That's who Donald Trump is. And we're getting to that point with Donald Trump where he's going to run. He's at the point now where he's flailing, just pulling anything out of his ass and throwing it against the wall because he's desperate. He's stressed out. He's angry. But that never works, and it will fail. The same thing is the case with Vladimir Putin. He walked up, and he was going to be the bully, and he thought people would curl up and die, but they didn't. So he had to take it another step. He doesn't know about backing up. He's not willing to do that. So he takes the next step, thinking now this bully tactic will shut them down. And it doesn't. So now he gets in so deep, he doesn't know what the fuck is going on. Now he's just flailing around trying to do anything. Unfortunately, he's destroying a perfectly peaceful country. And when he's destroying the perfectly peaceful country, a lot of people are dying. And it's all because of his ego, because he won't step back from it, even though he knows he's destroying his country and Ukraine and that he's probably going to be ousted as a leader and he may be tried for war crimes. He still cannot give up. He cannot give in to his ego. And that's what OAN and uh, Newsmax and Fox News 
does. We have a lot of people that have no power, but they have beliefs. They're stupid beliefs, but they believe it because they're stupid. And when these people tell them what they want to hear, they're just getting validation that what they think is right, even though it's not. When you're talking to somebody, whether it be in a podcast, a PSA, or you're a leader of a country, or run a network, you've got to get people's attention. Somebody once said, I don't know if it was Gary Vee or something like that, said, in this day and age, attention is currency. And he's right about that. We're in a day and age where we've got influencers on TikTok that have three million and all they're doing is dancing and lip syncing. As much as they aren't doing much, they do have power and they have the ability to make money. Now, when I started TikTok and started doing the podcast, I'm not thinking about making money because I know if I ever make money from this thing, it's a long way off. So I cannot be doing this for money. And I'm fortunate that I don't need the money. Don't get me wrong. I'm not rich. I'm not a billionaire or anything like that. But I got enough money to live my life and live it comfortably. So I have the opportunity to do the one thing I want to do without regards to it making money. So many people get into podcasts or even TikToks, and the first thing they think of, I got to make money on this thing, so I got to figure out what everybody wants, and then I'll just do that. I'll get all kinds of followers, and I'll make all kinds of money. That never works. What you got to do is what you feel, who you are. You got to tell your truth, and then you've got to throw all the chips on the table and hope to God that somebody resonates with whatever it is you're fucking doing. Now, when I started doing TikToks or this podcast, I had no idea whether people would listen to it. But I said, fuck it. It doesn't matter. If it fails, I don't really lose anything. I'm the one guy that gets to do what I want and see what the fuck happens. See if I'm right. And fortunately, up to this point, I have been proven to be right because I did get followers on TikTok a lot more than anybody expected, especially me. (laughs) And even with this podcast, you have to understand... I have done podcasts like 15 years ago when podcasts first came out. I was a traffic reporter. I hated it because I had no creativity. And when the first moment the concept of a podcast came out, I said, I'm fucking doing that. Well, at that time, it wasn't mainstream. Most people didn't know what podcasts are, but I still went and created some podcasts. I created a ghost hunting podcast before ghost hunting was fucking crazy on TV. I did a show with a psychic. I did a show about money that dealt with people who really didn't have money, but how to get more money. It was called The Average Joe Money Show. And I did those podcasts for quite a while, a couple years, but there was no way to make money. And I was in a situation at the time, I had to feed some kids, I had to pay some bills. And doing the podcast took up too much time, so I just stopped. And I didn't do podcasts for years and years and years. I always wanted to because at the time the podcast came out, I said to myself, this is the future. Radio is going to fade, and it is fading. Make no mistake about it. There's far fewer people listening to radio stations than ever before. But these podcasts are going to be something. And some point in the future, I want to do a podcast. I want to do it my way. You remember I talked about how I resigned from my job doing the traffic. And I resigned because I was essentially being forced out. We'll, we'll talk about that in the next segment. So when I got out of it and I wasn't really in radio, I still had this creativity, this, this 
interest in being in front of a camera or being in front of a mic. I thought, I can do this still. I should do it still. But never really had the opportunity or the time to do it. So when it started out with TikTok and then to this podcast, now I got time. Now I can do what I want. I can see what happens. And I'm thankful to say that you folks and the people on TikTok have made it possible for me to get some attention to allow me to do what my dream is. So whether I make money on it or not really makes no difference. I get to do what I want to do. And I thank you for allowing me to do that. All right, let's take a break. I'll go more stream of consciousness (laughs) right after this. All right, when I took the break, I forgot where I was headed, so I'm just going to continue on with this stream of consciousness. What I want to talk about is, is a period of time that I really had a lot of fun, and it was while I was in radio in my early years. I was working at a radio station when I was 16, 17 years old, and it was a great job. I was really involved in sports. I did play-by-play of high school, some college sports. I did a lot of interviews. And while I was working at the radio station, I was kind of working as a stringer. I created a job for myself, a job that a lot of people had. I didn't know it. I thought I made the shit up, but I'm basically a stringer. Because I had time, I would go out to press conferences and sporting events and such and get interviews. And then other radio stations, sometimes even other networks, would buy. It wouldn't be a lot of money, but they would buy cuts of my interviews to use in their broadcast because they couldn't send somebody out there. It was fun as hell. I didn't make a lot of money, but I made enough money for a kid 17, 18 years old. One of the jobs I had, one of the things I could do any day I wanted was that I had a pass to the Minnesota Twins games. I could go to every game absolutely free. Now, this also included a couple of other things. It allowed me to go on the field during batting practice to interview anybody. Now, the Twins had some stars, Rod Carew and the like, but there were a lot of stars from other teams that came, and that was really the draw. I'd see Sal Bando, uh, Brooks Robinson, All these kinds of Reggie Jackson, they'd be all there on the field, and I had the opportunity to walk up and talk to them, and I did. And a lot of them were nice. Some of them were dicks. I was just a kid, so I don't know how they really saw me. Uh, Some of them took me seriously, and others just kind of blew me off. You know who the worst motherfucker out there was? The worst person I ever talked to? One and two. First of all, um, Bobby Bonds. Bobby Bonds was kind of a utility player, and he's the father of Barry Bonds. He was a good player. He wasn't a great player, but he was an angry motherfucker. (laughs) He talked to me a couple times, but I never was able to use the interviews because he was just too fucking angry. Now, the other guy that was a little, little hard to deal with was Rod Carew, my own Minnesota twin and uh, he was kind of arrogant. He was kind of a jerk, and uh, but he was probably the biggest star in baseball at the time, so I interviewed him, and it always went okay. It was pretty basic, pretty generic. Uh, I know that Rod Crew in later years got to be a nicer guy and a more friendly guy. Now that he's retired, um, he's a pretty good guy. I haven't met him, of course, but there was another guy in the Twins team kind of before my time, but he was a great guy. He's going into the Hall of Fame this year, Tony Oliva. I see him on the field from time to time because he was a coach, just a friendly as hell guy. Recently, my wife and I were walking into this Chinese restaurant in uh, Bloomington, 
Now, this place in the 60s and 70s was kind of a hot spot for the cool, the beautiful, the pro athletes. It was kind of a meat market. And they'd all hang out there. But they have the fucking best Chinese food in town. My wife and I go there all the time. I'm walking in and coming out is 80-year-old Tony Oliva. I say, hey, Tony, what's up? And he kind of remembered me after 40 fucking years. But he was a hell of a guy. I think we might even go out to... uh, out to New York when he's inducted into the Hall of Fame with Jim Cott, just to go there and experience it. We went to the uh, NFL Hall of Fame induction of Randall McDaniel with the kids, so that was kind of fun. We'll try to do that with the baseball thing. Anyway, I'd be on the field, and I could talk to anybody. And one day, I've told this story before, but it bears telling again. I'm walking around. We're playing the New York Yankees. It's 1977. That's the big year for New York. You remember they won the World Series? They had the blackout. Son of Sam was killing people. There was a show that was called Bronx is Burning. It was a good show, and it was a big year for the Yankees. Now, in the 70s, the Twins weren't shit. They were losing all the time. But I'm walking around the field, and I see Billy Martin sitting on the bench in the dugout. He's all by himself. So I go by and I say, I'm respectful. I say, Mr. Martin, would you mind if I asked you a few questions? He says, sure, kid, come on down. So I walk down into the dugout, sit next to Billy Martin, and I start asking him questions about baseball, about the team, about the twins, because he used to be a manager of the twins. He got fired from the Twins, as he ultimately did with the New York Yankees a couple of times. And we're talking baseball. Couldn't be a fucking nicer guy. He was friendly. He was doing me a solid by doing this interview. And uh, we were talking, and it was going good. But I'm 17. I'm a hardcore journalist. I got to get down to the meat of the matter. Now, at that time, Billy Martin, it was reported, was having all kinds of problems with both Reggie Jackson and George Steinbrenner. (laughs) And they were arguing and fighting, and uh, Billy was kind of a volatile guy. He could even get in fights from time to time, but he was in big arguments with Reggie and George Steinbrenner. So, of course, being a serious journalist as I was at fucking 17 years old, I said, Mr. Martin, I understand you're having problems with Reggie Jackson. You guys aren't getting along. Immediately, the demeanor turned. You could see that Billy Martin was angry with me. But he didn't yell and scream. He didn't take a swing at me or anything. He thought he'd do something different. He wanted to ruin my interview. So he says, Reggie Jackson, Reggie fucking Jackson is the fucking greatest fucking baseball in fucking baseball. I love fucking Reggie Jackson. He's my fucking best friend. (laughs) You see what he was doing. He was throwing the F word in every other word so he couldn't use the interview. So then I bring up George Steinbrenner. What about George? You're not having a good time with him. And he says, George fucking Steinbrenner. Fuck George Steinbrenner. He's the greatest fucking owner in the history of baseball. Fuck in the history of sports. I fucking love George Steinbrenner. So I immediately knew what he was doing. I was only 17, but I could fucking see it. I definitely saw it. So I just kind of turned white, <laughs> kind of embarrassed. I said, all right, Mr. Mr. Martin, thank you very much for the interview. I got up, got the fuck out of there. Got the fuck out of there. 
because I was embarrassed. I just got tore up by Billy Martin. And so when I when I was getting up to go away, he kind of smirked. He slapped me on the shoulder. He says, good luck, kid. You're going to need it. <laughs> and he was fucking absolutely right. I went back to the station. I was mad. This guy's trying to ruin my interview. So what I did was I didn't throw it away and not play it. I went diligently, cut out every F word, replaced it with a beep, and it sounded ridiculous. But I'm going to play this thing because I'm going to show fucking Billy Martin who's boss here. (laughs) It's not him, not the World Series manager. It's this 17-year-old kid working in a shitty little radio station. I'm the one that's boss. So I play that. And it was, George, beep, George, beep. Reggie, beep, Reggie. And my boss came back to me and goes, what the fuck are you doing? I told him the story. He goes, well, that's just fucking stupid. You take that thing off the air and never, ever do anything like that again. I said, yes, sir. I found the error in my way. (laughs) But the funny thing about going out to the Twins game, not only did I get to go on the field, I got to watch the game from the press box. Now, we had all these old old reporters and old broadcasters, and they'd sit up there and tell stories, and it was fucking amazing. But I wasn't done pissing people off yet. (laughs) The owner of the team was Calvin Griffith. He was notably um, cheap, very cheap. And uh, later years we found out, little racist, little racist. They had a a statue of him at the current current stadium, Target Field. But when all this stuff came out about his racist attitudes, well, they took that fucking down. But he's the one that brought the twins from Washington, D.C. to Minneapolis. So anyway, a game's over. Twins lose again. And I'm Mr. Hotshot Reporter, and I see Kelvin Griffith walking by. I said, Mr. Griffith, do you mind if I interview you? Will you ask? Will you answer a few questions? And he looks at me like I just passed gas. He goes, are you fucking kidding me? We just lost. We fucking lost. Why would you want to interview me? Why would I want to talk to you? I said, well, sir, I'm just trying to get an interview, and I'm not trying to be disrespectful or anything. I just want to talk to you. He looks at me, still disgusted. He grabs me by the shoulder. He says, come with me. So I'm following, (laughs) following Kelvin Griffith, and he takes me to this room like a big dining room where all the hot shots eat. And, uh, and, and he brings me in there. He says, so you want to fucking interview me? He says, there's a couple things we're going to do before you interview me. He says, I'm hungry and I need a fucking drink. I said, okay, cool. I'll wait. He says, are you old enough to drink? Or no, he says, do you drink? I said, yeah, cause I did. He says, are you old enough to drink? I said, well, not technically. <laughs> he said, how old are you? I said, 17. And he says, how long have you been drinking? I said, since 14. He said, all right, what do you fucking drink? And I didn't know what to order. I got a whiskey sour, I think I got. And so I'm drinking the whiskey sour at 17 with Calvin Griffith. He goes, have you ever had beer cheese soup? I go, Mr. Griffith, I've never even heard of beer cheese soup. No, I don't want it. He goes, you're going to love this fucking shit. 
That's exactly how he talks to me. He sets it down in front of me, and he was right. That was the best shit ever. And to this day, I eat beer cheese soup anytime it's available. Then he got us a couple steaks and a couple potatoes, and we just talked back and forth. And he was kind of a foul-mouthed guy, which was fine, because I was kind of a foul-mouthed guy, and we talked. And then after the dinner, I did an interview with him. Very nice very appreci- I was very appreciative of all he did. He didn't have to do this, but apparently he saw something in me that he felt sorry for me or whatever. He took me up there, got me dinner, got me a drink, got me an interview. I got out of there and I was happy as a fucking lark. <laughs> so I pissed him off in the beginning, but in the end, I think we got to be kind of friends because I'd see him from time to time at the uh, at the stadium and he'd wave to me and I'd wave to him and that was about it. We didn't get to hanging around because he was in his 60s and I was 17 so and I was nobody and he was the owner of the team well later he sold the team to Carl Polad and he went away and he's since passed but that was an interesting story but in being a stringer I would go out to all the uh, (laughs) all the press conferences that would be happening in Minneapolis and there was a lot of things going on you know you'd have boxing You've had, you've had soccer because back in those days we had a, pl- a team called the Kicks. Yeah, the Kicks played soccer and they were well attended, but nobody ever went into the fucking stadium to watch the game. Nobody in Minneapolis knew what the fuck soccer was about. So what happened at the Kicks games? All the kids would go to the Kicks games and they would tailgate the whole fucking time in the parking lot, never go into the game. I can tell you, I've been really drunk at Kicks games, but rarely went into the Kicks game. <laughs> <laughs> there was one time, <coughs> excuse me, I will tell you this. <coughs> now, the one thing about the kicks, they had amazing press conferences. I mean, it was like a fucking buffet. They had steak, they had pork chops, they had potatoes, they had everything. So I always made it to the kicks press conferences. And they had a lot of good players, none that were really fancy, none that were really famous. But they had some players, and I'd talk to them, and I'd interview them, and what have you. And one day, they're playing the New York Cosmos. And at this press conference are some of the New York Cosmos. And there's two very famous guys on this New York Cosmos team. There is Giorgio Canaglia. I don't know if you know that name, but he was big back then. And the other is Pele. Pele, probably the greatest known soccer player in the history of fucking soccer, and I got to meet him. So I go up to him and I say, "Uh, sir, do you mind if I ask you some questions? And he kind of nods at me, and I start doing the interview. Well, I quickly realize... (laughs) This fucking guy doesn't speak English. So I got this great interview, but he's not speaking English and nobody knows what the hell he's saying. And he understands this, so he's kind of laughing at me every time I ask a question and he comes back with a uh, an answer that I can't understand. He kind of smirks. And then at the end of it, he hugs me, he pats me on the head, kind of takes his foot and kicks me in the butt and sends me on my way. So that was my experience with Pele. It's still a big moment in my life because he is a huge historical figure in the world of soccer. And then there was the time I met somebody that didn't end up so popular in history. It was O.J. Simpson. 
Now, I don't know if OJ was still playing or not. I don't think, maybe he wasn't. But he was touring around the country promoting some kind of orange juice, of all things. And so I hear OJ Simpson's coming to town. He's the biggest running back in history at that point. So I say, I got to go see this motherfucker. <laughs> so he does his little talk in the beginning, and I go up to him and I say, Mr. Uh, Mr. Simpson, do you mind if I ask you some questions? He said, sure, sit down. And uh, <laughs> he's, he honestly, he was the fucking nicest guy ever. He was friendly. He was nice. He didn't try to kill anybody while we were there, which was a good thing. So we're talking back and forth, and we're getting ready for the interview. And he looks at me and goes, you have a girlfriend? I said, yeah, I got a girlfriend. He goes, why didn't you bring her? I would have liked to have met your girlfriend. I said, uh, yeah, that would have been a problem. <laughs> he said, why? <laughs> I said, because if I brought my girlfriend, I would lose my girlfriend, and you would have a new girlfriend. <laughs> he goes, you know, that's fucking right. <laughs> <laughs> but I interviewed him, and this was well before the 1994 murder and all that stuff. But he was a great guy. He was a nice guy. He was friendly to me. He hugged me when we left, and uh, I felt good about that. We had boxing match. Boxing was bigger in Minnesota. We had one guy who really wasn't a great boxer, but he was well-known, and he fought some big-name people. His name is Scott Ledoux. He's since passed. He had a, I think he had ALS or something like that, and that was sad. <laughs> but we, he he was going to have a fight with uh, Larry Holmes, who was the heavyweight champion of the world. And Larry Holmes was the guy we all wanted to interview, okay? And so Larry Holmes outside, he's in his white mink coat. And at the time, he had made some comments that sounded kind of racist. I, I know black people can't be racist against white people, but that's what they were saying then. And somebody said, hey, Larry, people are saying you're racist. What's up with that? He goes, racist? I'm not fucking racist. I got a white mink coat. I got two white Cadillacs. I got two brothers that married white girls. I love white people. <laughs> and I just had to laugh. I don't know if that would play very well nowadays, but at the time, it was pretty funny. And then another time, we had Scott Ledoux fighting um um fighting uh who was it ken norton who was a big time boxer at the time and a couple of weird things happened with this situation ledoux's up there ken norton's up there neither one is too exciting and uh we we we're just watching it and all of a sudden i hear this noise in the background somebody yelling i turn around i don't see anybody so I keep watching the, uh, the, 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 the presentation here by Ledoux and, and by Ken Norton. And then I hear a voice, and I hear him say, the champ is here. I turn around and I look, and there's fucking Muhammad Ali. <laughs> Muhammad Ali. And he's yelling and screaming as he does, and he stands up and he says, the champ is here, the champ is here. Muhammad Ali, float like a butterfly, sting like a bee. And, of course, now nobody pays attention to Ken Norton and Scott Ledoux, and everybody's on Muhammad Ali. So I'm going to walk over. I'm going to say, a fucking chance to talk to Muhammad Ali. I'm going to walk up and talk to him. It's going to be hard because everybody wants to talk to him. But before anybody gets to him, 
I see him walk by this couple. Now, the woman is stunning. She's a stunning young woman. And the guy with her is not a big guy, but he's obviously built. He's obviously an athlete. So I'll, I watch Ali walk over to this couple, <clears throat> and he looks at the guy, and he says, what would you do if I stole your girl? And the girl speaks up and says, you better watch out. He's a boxer, too. Oh, shit. The guy was going, no, don't fucking say that. And so Ali looks at the kid, and he goes, you a boxer? He goes, well, yeah. He goes, you any good? <laughs> he says, yeah, I'm pretty good. He says, how's your defensive game? And the kid says, well, I'm pretty good. He says, oh, okay. <laughs> and then Ali proceeds to throw. He doesn't hit him. He throws about 30 punches in and around his head. The kid is just fucking mesmerized and scared and doesn't know what to do. <laughs> and Ali looks at him and says, you better work on your fucking defense because you didn't block any goddamn one of these things. So I did get to interview Ali. It was very short because everybody wanted to talk to him. But at least I was able to put that feather in my hat. Now, when the fight happened, it was weird because I was moving to Arizona to some shitty little radio station in Arizona the next day. But I was at the fight with Ken Norton and Scott Ledoux. I'm sitting like in the front row because I'm with the press. I got one guy from the press I know. I've known him for a long time. And I got this young black guy sitting next to me. And I'm talking to the black guy. We're having a good time, joking around, talking about Ledoux, talking about Ken Norton. And then the young black guy gets up and walks off. And the, the other radio guy sitting next to me says, you know who that is, don't you? I said, I have no fucking idea who that is. He said, that's Sugar Ray Leonard. I go, no shit. Now, Sugar Ray had been in the Olympics, and he was a big star. He was kind of early on in his pro boxing career, and the Olympics had gone. So I wasn't really paying attention. I didn't recognize him. He wasn't as big then as he is now, of course. I said, that's really fucking Sugar Ray Leonard? So he comes back, and we start talking some more. I don't let on that I didn't know who he was, and I don't let on that I now know who he is. But we're talking, having fun. He knows my name. He says his name is Ray. I say my name is Mike, and it's all cool. We have a good time. I go home that night. My grandfather and grandmother are living with us at the time, and my dad is there, and my brothers, they're all huge boxing fans. And I said, guess who I met today? And they said, who? I said, Sugar Ray Leonard. And I said, no, you fucking didn't. You didn't meet Sugar Ray Leonard. That's bullshit. <laughs> Nobody believed me. So the next morning, we get up. I'm moving to Arizona. My mom and dad are flying with me down to Arizona. My grandparents are keeping an eye on my younger sisters and my brother. So they're at the airport with me, my mom, my dad, my brother, my two sisters. And we're standing there in line trying to figure out the tickets and all that stuff. And then all of a sudden, I hear somebody yell my name. Hey, Mike, Mike, Mike. And I, I, I don't know who, who would be yelling my name at the airport. And I turn around, and here comes Sugar Ray Leonard and about four of his entourage. And they come over, and they're hugging me and say, hey, how you doing? That was a fucked up fight last night. <laughs> because if you remember in that, uh, in that Norton fight, uh, Somebody poured a bunch of water and ice down Norton's pants to try to wake him up. And I can tell you, after the fight, I went into his locker room, and this guy was fucking out of it. He didn't know where he was. But anyway, they come up, and they're hugging me. My dad, my brother, my grandfather, they're all going, what the fuck? 
<laughs> he did talk to Sugar Ray. And so we talked back and forth. And we had a good time. And Sugar Ray took pictures with my little sisters and my brother and my dad and my grandfather and my mom and my grandmother. And it was a great time. It was it was exciting to see this guy remember me and have enough interest to come over to talk to me. So I'm a young man. At that point, I'm maybe 18, 19 years old, and I'm going off to Arizona the next day to work in some shitty little radio station that doesn't do anything that nobody listens to. But at least I had that moment to uh, have some pride and show that, <laughs> that maybe I did know some people. And so years later, years later, Going back to the story about me being in the music business, at the time I got out of the music business and my brother was still kind of hanging in it with that artist that got the publishing deal, um, they were working with the same group that we worked before, the Force MDs, and the Force MDs asked this artist to come out to their studio in the Poconos out in Pennsylvania. And so my brother went along and they're going out there and... Uh, and they're working on these songs, and the guys from the Force MDs were cool. Everybody was nice, and they had a good time. But they're off someplace in, uh, in town, and they run across fucking Sugar Ray Leonard. Now, my brother had only met him, met him shortly at the airport when, when I was there, so he didn't really know him. But um, the guy we were representing was part of the band The Time. Sugar Ray Leonard was a huge fan of the time. He couldn't believe that somebody from the time was right there. Sugar Ray was fanboying over our guy, the guy we represented. And so they got talking. And uh, <laughs> and so after the recording and after Sugar Ray's training in the Poconos, that's what he was doing, uh, they said, let's all get together. Let's party. Let's do some shit. Now, at the time, my brother was a big Sugar Ray fan, so he was excited about being around. But Sugar Ray had this squeaky clean persona, a reputation of being a straight-up, straightforward, decent guy. And my brother said, when you went to these fucking parties, <laughs> Sugar Ray wasn't anything like you expected. And now, since he's written his book, and now that we hear the stories from him, we understand that he went through some shit. He was a little crazy. He had some alcohol problems. And so it makes sense now that what my brother tells me about that that experience. But they had a great experience with Sugar Ray and the Force MDs, and they did whatever they did. Not one fucking hit song came out of it. No money was made. So like all of my stories that I tell you, some of them are pretty impressive. Some of them are really interesting. Some of them are very fun, but I never made a million dollars off any fucking one of them. <laughs> and, you know, as I sit here at 61, going to be 62 years old very shortly, I think to myself, I looked at some of those things as failures because I didn't, wasn't able to capitalize on them and make a lot of money. But I was like a lot of young men at that point. I want to be rich and famous, have all the toys, have the big house, have the nice cars. But the odds of me getting that were pretty slim. Now, as I sit here at almost 62 years of age, I'm comfortable financially. I'm not a millionaire. I'm not rich. I'm doing what I want to do. So my dream should have been different. I shouldn't have been looking for the fortune and fame. I should have looked for just having a good life. 
And fortunately, that's where I ended up. And I think we all end up in that place if we just allow it to happen. We don't try to mix it up and try to try to fix everything. Just let it go. Do what you do and see where you end up. And generally, you'll end up where you need to be. I'm not rich and famous, but I'm having fun. <clears throat> I'm doing what I want to do. I'm paying my bills. I'm going places. I'm doing things, going out to dinner. I'm very comfortable. Never got rich and famous, but I'm glad I'm here. And I wouldn't change a thing in my past because I would be afraid that I wouldn't end up here. And even being rich and famous isn't where I'd want to be. I'd rather be here. Right now, doing what I'm doing here in my home, talking to you on this podcast. This is where I want to be. I'm happy. I'm content. I reached my goal even though I didn't know what my fucking goal was. All right, we're going to wrap up the Rational Boomer podcast. Now, I will tell you this. If you've listened to the last two podcasts and you say, what the fuck is this? I don't want to hear this shit. It's okay. It's okay. I understand that. I did what I had to do given the circumstances, but the next podcast you will hear will probably be Monday, and it'll be normal. We'll be talking about things at hand, the news, the problems, the trauma, the drama, the tragedy. We'll talk about those things because they need to be talked about too. So I took a little break, couple days. We're just reminiscing and talking some shit. <laughs> but never fear. We'll get back to where we were. Just stick with me here. I hope you have a great day and we'll talk to you again very soon. Thanks for listening to the Rational Boomer Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. We'll see you next time.